been uh, working our way through the book of Job. We've seen chapters 1 and 2, Job's righteousness and also his affliction. Chapter 1, we saw all that was taken from him. Chapter 2, we saw his health taken from him and the torment that his wife gave to him. as She said, curse God and die. We saw in chapter 3 how though he was a righteous man, yet Nevertheless, in his moment of trial, he began to speak some, some unseemly words. We saw how he was even sinfully cursing the day of his birth. And as we've been working our way through the dialogue section of the book from chapter 4 up through chapter 31, we've seen how Job's friends confronted him with various arguments. We saw how they turned proverbial wisdom on its head against him. And whereas proverbial wisdom would say, if you sin, you will suffer, Job's friends reversed the order and said, you are suffering, therefore you must have sinned. And they charged him with wickedness, both generally and specifically. We saw how they told him that if he would just repent, he would be blessed. We've seen how Job responded to his friends and how Job had confidence in the Lord and how Job's confidence in the Lord helped him survive everything that came upon him. We saw his, his trust in the, in the goodness of God as he said, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. We saw how he was looking for the Redeemer to come, how he knew that his Redeemer lived and that on the last day his Redeemer would take his stand on the earth and Job himself would be raised from the grave and would see him. But as we, as we move ahead tonight past the dialogue section into to chapter 32 and the the following chapters, there is a new man who takes the stage in the book of Job, a new man who speaks for six straight chapters. And he is introduced to us in chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, and he speaks from chapter 32, verse 6, all the way through the end of chapter 37. And this man is Elihu. So let's, let's look first to chapter 32, Job chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, and get our bearings, first of all, on, on who this man is, and then we'll move forward to consider his message. So we're at Job chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. Our author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barashel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. And so the context for the introduction of Elihu is the statement, the, uh, excuse me, rather, the, the stalemate that has developed between Job and his friends. We've seen uh, some of the dialogue section, right? We didn't read entirely everything in chapter 4 through chapter 31, but we've seen the, the dialogue back and forth they go. They accuse Job of sin. Job said, 
I didn't sin. That's not why I'm suffering. And back and forth they went, and eventually they got, they got to a stalemate, right? Both sides are entrenched. Neither side is budging. Job's friends had stopped speaking to him because he could not be convinced that sin was the cause of his trouble. As verse 1 puts it, he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, I think that we have to understand the statement there in verse 1, not in the sense that Job was a, a self-righteous man like, uh, like the Pharisee in Christ's parable in Luke chapter 18, who prayed, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, right? That's, that's one form of self-righteousness. And Jesus was telling that parable in Luke 18 to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others, viewed them with contempt. This is, this is not the character of Job. This is not what the... Uh, the, the, this is not what righteous in his own eyes means here, because such an attitude is one of pride, and the Lord detests the proud. This is not Job. As we've seen, Job uh, was a man who, described in chapters 1 and 2, is blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. That's not the description of someone who is self-righteous, right? This is not the, the description of someone who is a Pharisee. So we have to, to rule that possibility out of bounds. And so then what does verse 1 mean when it says that they ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes? I think the answer is, as John Gill put it, because they thought him self-conceited, self-willed, obstinate, and incorrigible, not open to conviction, stiffly insisting on his own innocence, not allowing that he was guilty of any sin or sins which were the cause of of his afflictions. I think the sense is that Job was, was righteous in his own eyes in the sense that, that he told his friends, the reason I am suffering is not because of some sin. They, they kept on trying to press him, and he stood his ground, and he said, no, that's not, that's not what it is. It's not that Job thought that he was righteous on his own before God. It is because his friends could not convince him that some sin of his was the cause of his problems. In that sense, he was righteous in his own eyes. His friends weren't buying it, but they couldn't convince him. And then in verse 2, we have the introduction of Elihu. He is introduced to us as the son of Bereshel, the Buzite of the family of Ram. Now, we don't know who exactly this man Bereshel is, and we can't be entirely certain of the precise family that is referred to, but it is certainly possible that this man Elihu is a distant relative of Abraham. According to Genesis chapter 22, verses 20 and 21, a man named Buzz, B-U-Z, was the name of one of Abraham's nephews. Buzz was the second son listed in the list that is given of the sons of Abraham's brother Nahor. Abraham's brother Nahor had sons. A man named Buzz was one of them. And so this man, Elihu, here may well be a descendant of Abraham's nephew, Buzz. Now, we can't say that for sure, but it's certainly possible. And so Elihu is, is there watching what's been going on. We don't know if he showed up at the beginning and watched this whole thing unfold, or if he showed up at some point after the debates had begun and was watching. But he's been watching what's been going on, and by now he is angry. And his anger extends in two directions, right? Both toward Job and toward Job's three friends. He's angry at Job because, in the words of verse 2, he justified himself before God. Or it could be translated, he justified himself 
more than God, or perhaps he justified himself rather than God. And I think the idea here is that Elihu is angered by the fact that Job is so bent on justifying himself against the charges that his friends were bringing against him, that he was a hypocrite, that he was a sinner, that that was the cause of his sins, and so forth, that he is going about to defend himself and his uprightness. He's really bent on that, but at the same time, he's not nearly so careful to defend the uprightness of God in all of this. And I think we'll see that as we move, move along. Earlier, back in chapter 1, verse 22, it was said of Job in his early response to his troubles that Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. But as the, as the book unfolds in chapter 3 up through chapter 31, Job was not always so restrained in his speech as he was in those opening chapters, chapters 1 and 2. Job, Job didn't say much, and what he said was good. But as the book unfolded, there are, there are some unseemly expressions that come out of Job's mouth. He was so focused on defending himself and so hurt by everything that had befallen him that he did actually slip into saying some things concerning the Lord that he should not have said. He was not careful, in other words, to justify the Lord in all of his ways. And thus it was that the Lord reproved Job as a fault finder as one who was finding fault with the Lord. We see that explicitly in chapter 40, verse 2, where the Lord reproves Job for finding fault with him. And so I think we can say that Elihu is angry with Job on legitimate grounds. I think think Elihu has a point here. And Elihu, as we said, his, his anger is extended two ways, both toward Job and toward the friends. The reason given for his anger toward the friends is there in verse 3 that they found no answer and yet had condemned Job. In other words, they could not convincingly respond to Job. They could not refute him. Yet they stuck to their guns in condemning him of sin, saying that sin was the cause of his suffering, and at the end of the day, Job was a hypocrite in some way or another. So Elihu is angry at them for this. And so this young man has been watching things unfold, And he sees now the stalemate, he sees the silence, he sees his opportunity to speak. And chapter 32, verses 6 through 22, is kind of his poetic introduction of himself, that he knows that he's young, he's been waiting on those who are older to speak, recognizing that with years often comes wisdom, though he does acknowledge in 32, verse 9, that The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. And as chapter 32 unfolds, Elihu basically says this this has kind of been boiling up within him. and He's got to let off his steam. Verse 19, he says, Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins. It is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. And so this is this is this man Elijah. He's the young Elihu. He's the young observer on the scene. He's been watching. He seems, as as we've seen in these opening verses of 32, that he seems to have some legitimate 
uh, legitimate concerns with both sides in this debate. So what is his message? What did this man have to say, and what should we think of what he had to say? Well, first of all, just, just kind of a, a general note. I think in general there's, there's two main schools of thought in interpreters of the book of Job as to how this man Elihu ought to be viewed. Some are inclined to view Elihu as fundamentally functioning in parallel with Job's other three friends. This school would say that maybe Elihu is a little bit more nuanced or maybe his focus is a little bit different, but he's more or less doing the same thing, more or less offering the same critique that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did in their critiques of Job. Now, there's a second school of thought that would see Elihu as fundamentally different from these three friends and fundamentally correct in his critique of Job. Those in this second school of thought may be willing to grant that maybe Elihu had some issues, some problems, but nevertheless, at the end of the day, he's very different from Job's three friends. And I think that this second school of thought is actually correct. I think uh, just in the way I understand the text and the arguments that, uh, that I've seen, I think that this second school of thought actually uh, has the most weight, at least as far as I can tell. Um, James Durham gave some, some helpful reasons why he thought that, that Elihu was correct in what he said. I'll just give you a couple of those. He said, one, because when God quarrels with Job and his friends, he is not spoken to. And what, what Durham is getting at is... Uh, that in reference to, to when God speaks at the end of the book, God takes Job to task as a fault finder, chapter 40, verse 2, and he says that Job's friends, speaking of the three friends, chapter 42, verse 7, had not spoken of him what was right as Job had. And so the Lord reproves Job as a fault finder, reproves the three friends, but there's nothing said by way of reproach or for that matter, commendation in regard to Elihu. But, but both Job and his three friends are critiqued. No critique is offered of Elihu. The second reason Durham gave was because God begins on the same score that Elihu left off at. And what he, what he means is that if you, if you follow the text and you read the argument that Elihu had been making starting in the, in the latter half or latter portion of chapter 36 and all the way through chapter 37, the basic argument is that God is great, God is powerful, he does things that we can't understand. And I think 37, 14 through 16 are helpful in giving the drift of his argument, kind of uh, focusing us on what he was saying. He says there, this is 37 beginning in verse 14, he says, Listen to this, O Job, stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of the one perfect in knowledge? Elihu's argument is that God does all of this great and mighty work in the natural world and you can't understand it, you can't explain it. The implication then would, would seem to be that if you can't understand these things in the natural world, then maybe likewise Maybe likewise you can't understand what God is doing in your own life. And when you look at the way the Lord begins to speak to Job in chapter 38, when the Lord finally shows up and speaks to Job in this book, he begins, the Lord begins, by employing this same line of argumentation. So 
The Lord says to Job, beginning in chapter 38, verse 2, this is 38, 2 through 5, he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you, under, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched out the line on it? In other words, when the Lord starts to speak, he basically picks up the same line of argument that, that Elihu had, had already been laying out. And I think that, uh, that Durham's line of reasoning there, those, those couple of reasons that I just gave are, are helpful. And, and also, I think that if you, if you read through the section, chapters 32 through, through 37, and you read what Elihu actually says to Job, the things that he says are of a very different sort than what his other three friends had to say. And I think one commentator put his finger really on the, the heart of the difference between, between the two sides, between Job's three friends and Elihu, when he said, the friends said that Job was suffering because he had sinned, right? That's, that's what they were saying. They said that Job was suffering because of some sin he had committed. Elihu says that Job has sinned because he was suffering. And I think that's a, that's a pretty accurate and helpful statement of the difference. The three friends are saying, you're suffering. There's some sin in the past. We know it. It's really bad because you're suffering this way. Elihu says, Job, you've actually sinned now in your suffering. Your suffering has brought you to the point of sinning. And I think that insight is, is very helpful and, and accurate. And so let's, let's look at... Uh, at some of what he says to Job in, in one of his accusations against him. Let's look, at, let's look at chapter 33, verses 8 through 13. So this is Elihu speaking, chapter 33, beginning verse 8. He says, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. And then he quotes from Job, verse 9, I am pure, without transgression. I am innocent. There is no guilt in me. Behold, he, that is the Lord, invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. And then Elihu says, verse 12, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. For God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? So Elihu harkens back to, to what Job has said in the course of the dialogue, and he gives a quote from, from Job there in verses 9 through 11. And in those words that Elihu gives, what is, what's Job doing there? Job is justifying himself more than God. He's justifying himself rather than God, which is the very thing that Elihu was said to be angry about back in chapter 32, verse 2. Elihu's main point here is that, that Job is saying in, in these words, essentially, I am righteous, God is picking on me. Job's been quarreling with God's manner of dealing with him, almost implying that God is doing something wrong, while at the same time he's still maintaining his own uprightness. I am righteous. It's almost like, Lord, what, what are you doing here? You're making me suffer. Something, something is not right in your conduct towards me. But as for me, I'm righteous. I'm, I'm upright. There's something off in this, something, 
something that's not right. And so Elihu says in verse 12, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. The problem, as far as Elihu is concerned, is not that that Job is maliciously wicked and openly mistreating people, as Eliphaz suggested back in 22, verses 5 through 9. The problem is not that Job is merely pretending to be godly, but is secretly a hypocrite. The problem, as far as Elihu is concerned, is that Job is making himself look all good and clean and innocent, and yet at the same time speaking some very unseemly and irreverent things toward God, making some very bad insinuations about the character and conduct of God. And I think that Elihu is is correct about this. And I think the Lord's words to Job in chapter 40, verse 2, and Job's response uh, later on, make the point clear enough that Elihu was right in his assessment. And so if you flip over uh, to, uh, to chapter 40, the Lord says to Job, this is uh, chapter 40, verse 2, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And how does Job answer? Verses 3 through 5, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add nothing more. I think the, I think the point is it's clear enough that Job was falling, finding fault with God, reproving God in some ways. The Lord called him out on it. And Job said, okay, you're right. I'm done. And so Elihu says here, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. And then notice how he gives the reason immediately after this. This is uh, the end of verse 12. For God is greater than man. In verse 13, why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? God is greater than man. God is in charge and he does not owe to you, to me, to Job or to anyone else an explanation for what he does in the world. He does not need to give an account to you for how he has treated you. Job was making the mistake of trying to call God to account. Job may also have been forgetting the goodness of God in the midst of his pain and suffering. Now, on the one hand, as as we've already seen in the book of Job, Job did remember the goodness of God. Passages like Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. But on the other hand, some of Job's utterances, utterances such as that found in chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, make it seem as if he has forgotten about the ultimate goodness and faithfulness of God. Let's, let's look there at what Job says in chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. Job says to the Lord, You renew your witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been, carried from womb to tomb. Would he not let my few days alone? Withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer before I go and I shall not return. 
to the land of darkness and deep shadow, to the land of utter gloom as darkness itself, of deep shadow without order and which shines as the darkness. Elihu says that this is a problem. And it is a problem. And we see Elihu kind of bring up this, this same general theme yet again in chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. Let's look to what Elihu says there in chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. Again, same, same general theme of what we saw in chapter 33. He says, For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Now, let's look down to verses 10 through 15, just just a few verses down, and let's see how Elihu responds to this attitude of Job. Job saying, I'm righteous, God has taken away my right, my wound is incurable. What does Elihu say? Look at uh, down beginning verse 10. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him authority over the earth and who has laid on him the whole world? If he should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So Job, again, is feeling that God is dealing unjustly with him. And Elihu reminds Job that God is not going to do wickedness. God is not going to do wrong. God is not going to pervert justice. And then... In verse 13, he brings in the matter of God's sovereignty. That God is in charge of the world. That God can do as he pleases. And the point then is that it is not for us, mere mortals, mere creatures, to accuse God of justice or wrongdoing because God is absolutely just and absolutely sovereign. Absolutely in charge. Let us therefore not even insinuate that what the Lord has done is not right. And he makes this uh, same point uh, to Job again by his his question to Job in chapter 35, verse 2. Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say, my righteousness is is more than God's. That's, again, that's, that's, that's the issue, right? That, that Job is justifying himself more than God, justifying himself rather than God. Essentially acting, as Elihu puts it in the question there, Job is somewhat acting as if his righteousness is more than God's. And I think Elihu has put his finger here on something in all that we've seen. He's put his finger on something that I think was a problem for Job. Namely, that in his suffering, he sinned in this way. I think think the text has sufficiently established that for us. And I think that in all of this, Elihu has put his finger 
on something that is especially pertinent to us as well. Whether or not our suffering is because of sin, we need to be careful that our suffering does not lead us to sin. Regardless of the source of the suffering, we have to be careful. We have to watch out that our suffering does not lead us to sin in this way. By standing upon our own righteousness and justifying ourselves rather than God, making it seem as if our righteousness is greater than God's. And I think there is a sense in which we of all generations need to be reminded of this. Why? We tend to have a high opinion of ourselves. We tend to think of our moral judgments as being highly tuned. And we are indignant at injustices and at perceived injustices. We've been taught to stand up, to fight for our rights, and to speak out against injustice. Now, in saying that, let me, let me not be misunderstood. Any injustice that is truly an injustice is wrong and should not be done, should not be tolerated. Those in power to stop it and those who have the opportunity to legitimately work against it should and ought to do so. I'm not suggesting in the least that injustices are good or that we ought to simply shrug our shoulders and keep on, keep on walking when there is a lack of true justice. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that as a society, as a culture, we have a high sensitivity toward the issue of justice and injustice, at least in some respects. And indeed, sometimes there is a hypersensitivity on the issue, such that even where there are perceived injustices, which are not truly injustices, but are labeled as injustices anyways, those who perpetrate those perceived injustices are hunted down, derided, sued, prosecuted, whatever. The point is, is that we're, we're very sensitive to this issue of what is just and what is unjust. And that being the case, I think that when we ourselves are suffering or that when we are acquainted with other cases of suffering, we stand in an especially heightened danger of standing in judgment against God, of standing on our own righteousness rather than God's. Again, Elihu's question, chapter 35, verse 2. Do you say, my righteousness is more than God's? Back in 1947, C.S. Lewis wrote his essay, God in the Dock, and he said this. He said, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench, God is in the dock. In other words, man is the judge, and God is on trial. In 2010, a writer named Fitzsimmons Allison commented in the opening of, of his book called Trust in an Age of Arrogance. He commented on uh, Lewis's essay, God in the Dock, and he said, What was true in Lewis's day, in the middle of the last century, is even truer in postmodernity. We who live in modern and postmodern times have traded our role with God's role. God is no longer the judge of us, but we of him. We have arrogated to ourselves the attributes of deity and given God the responsibility to justify himself, repent, change, or disappear as irrelevant. 
Lewis's prophetic and diagnostic description written in 1947 has clearly come to pass. Awe, fear, trembling, dread, reverence, and even respect are almost absent today from the human posture before God. This is the air that we are living in. This is the air that we are breathing in to ourselves. It's not the air of reverent submission, but an air which is more inclined to do exactly what made Elihu so angry in the first place, the tendency to justify ourselves rather than God. When we are confronting suffering, we have to make sure that our minds and our hearts start in the right place. And the right place to begin is not with our own innocence, though we may be innocent. We might be like Job. We might be completely innocent in our suffering. But the right place is not to begin with our own innocence or our own indignation at what may be happening to us. The right place to start is with submission to God, fear and reverence toward him, confidence in his goodness, in his faithfulness, even in those moments when his goodness, faithfulness, love, mercy, and grace are difficult to perceive. What we need most in those moments is to strengthen ourselves in God and not to be throwing stones at God or harboring ill suspicions of him. I think the Huguenot preacher Jean Dale was spot on the money when he said, if in the circumstances of your life or in those of your brethren, something should occur, the reason of which you do not perceive, remember that though you may be ignorant of it, you are not on that account to say that there is none. Allow that God is wiser than you and that there is something in his ways which is above your comprehension. And there it is. Something happens to you, you don't know why. You don't understand. Something happens to someone else, and you don't know why. You don't understand. It doesn't mean there's no reason. It's because you don't know it. It doesn't mean there's not a reason. You have to allow that God is wiser than you. You have to allow that there's something in his ways that are much above your comprehension. Suffering is bad enough as it is, and we don't need to make it worse by imagining something sinister of God in our suffering or thinking something of God that is completely unworthy of his character in our suffering. And in this, we ought to take our Lord Jesus Christ as a model for ourselves. Christ himself suffered more than, than any man when he went to the cross and died to redeem us. He deserved nothing in any sense, of all that came upon him. And though he understood fully what was happening to him and he fully understood why it was happening, even his understanding of it didn't make the pain of the suffering go away. But what did Jesus do in his suffering? We're told in 1 Peter 2.23 that he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In all of the agony, Christ kept on entrusting himself to God the Father. Though he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nevertheless, he never did accuse the father of wrongdoing. May it be the same with us. And Peter would later go on and say in that same epistle, 1 Peter 4, as we read earlier tonight, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. 
Now, if you read, the, if you read in the context, the end of 1 Peter 4, Peter's clearly talking there in context about persecution, suffering for the faith as a result of persecution. And I would, and, and so obviously, in that context, in that circumstances, if you're suffering in that way according to the will of God, yes, entrust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And I would broaden it out. If you're suffering in, in any way for any circumstances, whether it be persecution for your faith or, or something else, whatever you're suffering, continue entrusting your soul to a faithful creator and doing what is right. That keep, keep doing what Jesus did. He entrusted himself continually to him who judges justly. That's what we need to be doing. Peter goes on and says, as we saw in chapter 5, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. That's what we need to know when we're suffering, that God cares for us, that he loves us, that he is ultimately good. doesn't make the pain go away, but it might help us in the pain not to, not to be harboring evil suspicions against God. And so when when the pain, the suffering comes, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Don't arrogate yourself and suppose that your righteousness is greater than his. You be humble. You trust him. You entrust yourself to him. And you trust, as Peter says, that he will exalt you at the proper time. That's what we see in Job, right? That God exalted him at the proper time. And so when we suffer, let's do what Peter says. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and kindness to us, and Lord, we know that suffering is real. We've all experienced suffering in greater and lesser degrees, and it hurts. And in the moment, it is so easy to be angry with you. So easy to think things of you that are completely unworthy of you. So Lord, we pray that you would guard us from this. We pray that you would help us to always trust your goodness and your character and your faithfulness, even when we can't make sense of the circumstances. We ask your help in this, for we know we can't do it alone. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.